Well, good morning. It's good to be in the pulpit here this morning. Uh, it's always a privilege to open God's Word. And this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 5 this morning. As you turn there, I just wonder, have you ever felt wronged before? Have you ever felt like someone has personally attacked you? Or maybe you've looked around and you're wondering why it seems that the good guys seem to be losing and the bad guys seem to be winning. Have you ever witnessed injustice and wondered if things will ever change? You see, these are some of the thoughts that I believe David was thinking as he wrote Psalm 5. We don't know much about this psalm, except he wrote it in the morning, and he's dealing with evil, and he's dealing with some evil men, and he's dealing with some evil men winning at his expense. So as we get into this psalm, I just want to give you a quick note about how we're going to approach this psalm. Psalms are Hebrew poetry, and so there's a couple different ways you can look and analyze the text, but this morning... There's basically two cycles that happen one after another. Uh, You see David coming to God in prayer, and then David addresses the wicked, and then David addresses the righteous. And then he does that again. He, He prays, he has a petition for God, he addresses the wicked, and then he talks about the righteous. So what we're going to do, instead of going line by line, we're going to take thought by thought. And so we're going to take both halves of the psalm at the same time, so that way you don't have to listen to two repetitious sermons, one right after the other. So that's just an FYI as we walk through the psalm, how we're going to approach it this morning. So as we begin, will you pray with me? Dear Lord, it is our prayer this morning that you would reveal your word to us. Lord, you know that. No one is really qualified or worthy to preach, especially a text like this. But we're thankful that it's not about the guy up here, but it's your word that is eternal and always right. Lord, I pray that that is evident this morning, that your spirit would work in our hearts as we listen to what you have to say to us here in this room. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So the problem here that we're going to address in Psalm 5 as we start out is what are we supposed to do when we feel attacked? What are we supposed to do about all those wicked people out there? What about when we're wronged or we see injustice? What do we do? And so we begin with verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 5. Look with me in your word. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The first thing we should understand this morning is simply that we go to God. When pain comes, when hurt comes, when confusion comes, we go to God. And if you've been here any length of time, if you've listened to any of the other sermons on Psalms, This is a common theme. This isn't something new that we should go to God. Because this is basically what the book of Psalms is. It's a book that is addressed to God. It's a collection of songs and hymns that are addressed to God. And they're for God's people as they live life. The Psalms are written to God. So it only makes sense that as we look 
at these psalms that our response will be to go to God. And I hope we all are on the same page with that. So we're not going to spend much time with this understanding of we go to God. But I do want to address and answer quickly why. Why do we go to God? Well, simply because God hears. We go to God because God hears. You can see David's confidence in verse 3 as he approaches God. In the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You see, David's expecting that God will hear. God's, David is sitting, watching, and waiting for God to act. David comes to God on faith. And that's the key here. We go to God because God hears. That common theme throughout Psalms. But what I want you to think about or consider is I wonder if you've ever uh, tried to figure out, do I have faith? How much faith do I have? Do I have a little faith? Do I have a lot of faith? Where am I on the faith spectrum? Well, one good way that you could gauge your faith is by looking at your prayer life. Looking at, look at the way you communicate with God. And then compare that to the Psalms. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. The Psalms is the Bible. And I'm not a biblical author, and you can't expect me to have a faith like the Psalms. And what I would tell you is, well, yes, you're not a biblical author, but the good news is the Psalms isn't just one person who has it all together, that writes a perfect little scenario about what it looks like to be a person of faith. Actually, it's quite the opposite. As you go through the Psalms, you realize that faith is often messy. But it's always authentic. And so as you read through the Psalms, you see the authors writing things like, God, help me. God, I need you. God, I messed up. God, you're awesome. God, I love you. God, I messed up again. Right? This is the Psalms. And and, and what the key here for us to get in this is that I'm afraid sometimes we don't think we have faith and we don't have everything all put together. And we don't sound faithy enough or churchy enough. But that's not true at all. Because the way we measure our faith isn't by the scale to which we have it all put together. But the way we should measure our faith is by how often we go to God in the ups and the downs of life. And so we ask God, like David does here in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. This is what it looks like to walk with God By faith. We don't have it all put together, but we understand, God, I'm trusting you. In the good times and the bad, my desire is to follow you. I go to God because I know he hears. And so that sounds good. That's nice. That's encouraging. But that may leave you sitting there like I was saying, well, but that's good for me. But we started this talking about evil people. What about those evil people? What about the people that are oppressing 
the weak? What about those people that are stealing from the poor? And what about, even worse, those people that are attacking me? Or God, or Christianity. What are we supposed to do about those people? And David addresses that in this psalm. We move on to the next thought in the next sections, verses 4 through 6, and then we'll read verses 9 and 10. David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verse 9, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So what are we supposed to do about all these evil people out there? Well, we trust God. We trust what the Scriptures tell us, like this one, what the Scriptures teach us about evil, what the, te- what the Scriptures teach us about those who practice evil. You see, David doesn't really mince words here at all about how God feels about those people who are practicing evil and those people who are wicked and unrighteousness. But ultimately, we trust God because we know God judges. God judges. He is the one who will set all things right. We trust that He will ensure that justice prevails. We trust that He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. That nothing catches Him by surprise. That even the things that we don't understand and we wouldn't do and we wouldn't let happen, that God judges and God knows and God's in control. You see, David was dealing with some seriously evil people who were clearly against him and, more importantly, against God. If you go back through, and they're described as evil, as boastful, as evildoers, as liars, as bloodthirsty and deceitful, as rebels who will be destroyed by God. Now, that's not a very popular thing to talk about in today's culture, in our society. We'd much rather talk about how loving God is, about how God has a wonderful plan for your life. We don't really talk much about verse 5, God hating all evildoers, about the Lord abhorring the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We really don't like to talk about God destroying those who speak lies. Many people have simply just stopped talking about these aspects of God. But I would contend to really understand God's holiness, to really understand God's love, His grace, and His mercy, we also must understand and know His wrath, His hate, and His holiness. Even if it makes us uncomfortable you know many people often quip things like well god hates the sin but he loves the sinner 
So the problem with that phrase is it's really not a biblical concept. There may be some truth buried in there. But the main problem with that phrase is that sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. Sin can exist by itself. You cannot separate sin from the sinner. God does not punish sin. He punishes sinners. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, we see God not hating just sin, but God hating sinners. You know, verses like these were probably in the back of Jonathan Edwards' mind when he penned that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you've heard an excerpt from there like this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in His sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in His eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent in ours. You have offended Him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. But I thought that God is love. Yes. But you just said God hates sinners. Yes. We don't have time for a full theological exploration of that tension and that seemingly contradiction. But we will reconcile those two thoughts in a few minutes. But I would point out that it's important here to understand that David is contrasting here the wicked versus the righteous, those who are against God versus those who are for God, those who are completely opposed to God versus those who are trusting and have faith in God. But I would warn you that two things tend to happen when we start talking about the judgment of God upon sin and sinners. The first thing that happens is the world's reaction. And the world's reaction, culture at large, says we don't like that. That can't be true. That is offensive. There is no God that could be described as loving that would be so cruel, so hateful, so vengeful that it would send sinners to hell. That's not a God. That's loving. It's interesting because often those same people don't think that murderers should run free. They don't think that thieves should be able to steal. They have some moral compass, but when it comes to God punishing sin, they don't like that. And there's probably several reasons why, but I think the main one comes down to the fact that if we say there's a God who punishes sin, that means I'm accountable to someone outside of myself. And I don't like that. So that's the first thing that we need to be prepared for when we start talking about God's judgment of sin 
and sinners. But the second tendency that I see happen a lot, that we really have to be careful of here, is the tendency for us as we talk about God judging sinners to become the judge ourselves. And that's not our job. We trust God because God judges. We don't need to go judge the evildoers and the outside world. That's not our job. But see, our tendency is it's easy for us to think of those people over there, those sinners, those kind of people that are doing this and doing that, and we don't like it and we don't agree with it, and that makes us uncomfortable. And don't you know that God doesn't like you? And God hates what you're doing? I don't think that's our primary job here as Christians. Now, I know that as long as Pastor Keith is in the pulpit, as long as I'm around here, that we're going to stand on and preach truth. And we're not going to be afraid to call out sin when sin needs to be called out. But we're going to remember that God is the judge. And we're going to know that our job is to first examine our own hearts. You see, it's true that David here is praying against his enemies, against the enemies of God, and he's praying for divine justice to come down and intercede into whatever situation he's found himself in. But I don't think our main takeaway this morning should be going home and starting praying for the destruction of sinners and praying for those who are against us and praying for those that we don't like and praying against that person that spreads rumor. That's not the takeaway from today. You see, I think a more important application comes for us to have a better understanding about ourselves. We need to take the words of Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 3 to heart. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, the application for us today is not so much about the sin that's out there as it is about understanding our condition apart from God. David is crying out against his enemies. But the same could be said about us who are enemies of God. Everything that we say about God hating and condemning and judging sin still applies to the sin that exists in our own lives. You see, we're not just talking about the sin of people out there anymore, but the sin that lives and resides in us. God's feelings towards sin has not changed. It's easy to point out the sin and the wickedness in the outside world. It's not our job question is, what about the wickedness that's in your own heart? Because it's the sins that are within us that condemn us. 
the things of the sins of omission, the things we should do but don't, the sins of commission, the things that we know that we do that we know are wrong, the sins of the heart, pride, other sins of gossip and lying. It doesn't matter what they are, how small, how big. The sins that are within us are the ones that condemn us. But if there's none righteous, and if we could be described as enemies of God, then couldn't we say that David too could be described as an enemy of God? And that would be true. But look in verse 7 about how David, the adulterer, the murderer, the sinner, describes his relationship with God. He says in verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Wait a minute. Doesn't David understand his own sin? Doesn't He obviously knows how God feels about sin, so how can he have such confidence to enter into the house of God? The most important word of verse 7 and the entire psalm is the word your. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. See, what we're seeing here is David is entering the house of the Lord not because of his own righteousness, not because of anything that David has done, but everything because of who God is and what God has done. He says, because of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. This word has been translated in the ESV, steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And this word has given a lot of people trouble in terms of trying to translate. And so here we see it as steadfast love, but it's this nuanced word that we can't translate well into English. And so it's been translated in other places as a loyal love or a covenant love or an unfailing love or loving kindness in the King James. The scholars tell us that it denotes kindness, love, loyalty, and mercy. Another one says, well, hesed is strength, steadfast, and love. And all three of those things interact together to give us this word of hesed. Another scholar describes it as the quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. He goes on to say that hesed is described mainly through action rather than emotion. And so all of these things, scholars are trying to wrestle with this little word hesed. But you know what my favorite translation of this this word is? It actually comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This children's Bible, they hear Stephanie reading to Ainsley just about every day. And there's this phrase that keeps repeating all the time. And lo and behold, it's their translation of this word has said. And it goes like this. It's God's never stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Because of your never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, I will enter your house. That's how God feels. But you know, the other thing I really love about the Jesus Storybook Bible is how it teaches our children 
not that just the Bible is full of stories, but that all of these stories are part of a bigger story. That this is a collection of stories that show one overarching truth. That God loves His children and He came to rescue them. You see, this is why we hope in God. Because God rescues. When in verse 7 we see, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love, the application is that we have to hope in God. We hope in God because God rescues. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love was accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, we said earlier that we're going to reconcile this thought of God's hatred of sinners and God's love for the world. And this is where it happens. We reconcile these two thoughts at the cross. Listen to some verses from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is God's rescue plan. Jesus became our sin on the cross. Jesus took God's wrath on the cross in our place so that we might live forever. The cross is how God's character does not change how He can be perfectly holy and just, but still exacting payment for sin while demonstrating grace and love for the sinner. Because He who knew no sin became sin for us. Isaiah 53 continues, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is how we are counted Righteous, only through faith in the shed blood of Christ on the cross. He became our offering. He took our sin and guilt. And in return, He gives us His righteousness. This is the grace of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Edwards preached that sermon on God's wrath and anger and hatred of sinners. Not because He hated people, 
but because he loved them. Many people haven't heard the end of the sermon. They just focus on the imagery of the spider hanging over the fire. But as Edwards closes that sermon, he writes this. He pleads with those who listened as I would plead with you today. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands and calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. There are many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in, are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to Him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in His own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. We go to God because we know He hears. We trust God because we know He judges. And we hope in God because we know He rescues. So where does that leave us? Where do we go from here? Well, I hope the first response is quite evident. We run to Christ. We need to recognize our own sinfulness. We need to recognize our own personal need for a Savior. If you haven't placed your trust in Christ, you need to understand that you stand in opposition to God. That your sin will destroy you. Run to Christ. Kneel at the cross and rely on His love and His mercy and His grace. And then remember your sin. Don't wallow in guilt. But do not forget what Christ has saved you from. Do not think too highly of yourself. Do not fall into that trap of thinking that because I am now saved and a Christian that I can stand above and superior to all those sinners over there. Don't forget that we were all once enemies of God. And only because of the grace of God through Christ can we be counted as righteous? Use your testimony. Use your need and your brokenness and your remembrance of what God has saved you from to talk about Jesus, to reach to others who need to hear the truth of a Savior. And then we respond with worship. Here we come to the last two verses of the psalm. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. See, worship is more than just coming to church and singing a few songs. In this psalm, we definitely see right here the psalmist rejoicing and the, and the psalmist singing for joy. And that is certainly worship. 
But if we were to walk back through the psalm, we would see David's commitment to obedience. David's commitment to knowing God. David's commitment to enjoying Him. We could preach a sermon right there. All of those things demonstrate worship. Because you see, worship is how we live our life in response to what God has done in us. That's worship. And it's all-encompassing. God has given us everything. Shouldn't we return to Him in kind? Let's pray. Dear Lord, no one wants to hear that they're hated, (laughs) they're opposed to God, that they're sinners. The Lord's Scripture is clear that that's exactly what we are without you, without Jesus. And so I pray for someone who may need to understand their own sinfulness. But I'm thankful that we are here standing with hope, that we have hope in a risen Christ, that we have hope in a Jesus who was sent by a Father who loves the world that we stand here not condemned by our own sin, but we are counted righteous through your Son. Lord, help us live like that. Help us run from sin. Help us follow hard after you. Help us live a life of worship that we would get to know you more and more each day, that we would have a deeper understanding of this love that is continually poured out for us. We pray all these things in your name.